Welcome to Proof of Culture. Proof of Culture is a podcast that is dedicated to exploring the dynamic and evolving world of culture in Web3. In each episode, we dive deep into the stories, strategies, and insights of the most influential figures in this space. Our goal is to provide listeners with in-depth knowledge and trends of the most fascinating people who are driving our culture forward. As always, I'm your host, Sean Morrison, founder of The Blockchain and a passionate advocate for the amplification of BIPOC, women, and LGBTQ artists and entrepreneurs in the NFT space. Today, we're thrilled to feature Betty, the pioneering mind behind Deadfellas, a groundbreaking NFT project that has captivated the digital art world. This project has not only challenged conventional norms, but also managed to foster one of the most vibrant and inclusive communities in the space. Betty's journey is a testament to the transformative power of NFTs and the potential they hold for artists and collectors alike. Betty is a trailblazer in the NFT space. She has a rich background in digital art and creative services. She's got a keen eye for detail and a deep understanding of the cultural shifts in the digital art world. She has positioned Deadfellas at the forefront of the NFT movement. Her commitment to diversity and inclusivity aligns perfectly with the ethos of the blockchain, making this episode a must-listen for those who champion these values. In this episode, we'll explore how the project came about, what it's like working with her husband and partner Psych to create the Deadfellas, why Betty thinks Asia is the next vanguard for digital innovation, and her latest project, Culture on Chain. As always, We'll discuss the importance of representation and inclusivity in Web3 and what's next for the Death Fellas. This episode promises to be insightful and inspiring. Okay, let's go. Betty, thank you so much for being here. You were like one of the top people that I really wanted to talk to. The way that you move in the space has been super admirable. Tell me about your journey to Web3. Uh, everyone has sort of a circuitous path, I think to this space and I'd love to hear your story about how you got here. I think the the destination of Web3, like literally nobody had in their minds really because none of us even knew what it was, you know? But I think that there's a unifying factor in the people that found it when they did in that they were looking for something else. You know, they were looking for disruption. They were looking to create. They were looking for for more than, than what was. And mm -hmm. that was no different with me. I have been a person, and I've spoken about this quite a lot, I've been a person that's done lots of different things, like loads of different things. I studied biomed at uni. It's a strange journey. And I would spend a lot of time worrying and getting a lot of anxiety over the fact that I was wasting my time in the various things that I was doing. And I was frustrated that I never seemed to found my thing. You know, I, I could do a lot of things and I was good at a lot of things, but I never found the thing that I was like, this is me, this is what I wanna do. And I always, my whole life, knew that I wanted to create. I just didn't know what or where or how. And, but I did, I threw myself into creating a lot of different things over my life and it's been, it's been a big journey. Prior to Web3 though, I was running a creative production agency with my husband, Syke, who is the co-founder of Deadfellas and the artist at Deadfellas. And we would service triple a brands we, we were doing really well we had good clients like it was it was good work you know we were looking after brands like google and the un and the olympics and it was a good setup but it was very very corporate and very much like we we've got bounds to the creativity that we can play with but i'm not complaining because it was you know it was a client list to die for and, and really cool but 
Once COVID hit, because of a lot of the things that we were creating were tied to real life events and activations around the world, everything obviously got canceled. And the creative industry was one of the first things to just drop completely because it's seen as unnecessary and I guess frivolous in many instances. And so we took a huge hit, huge, huge hit. We had three children. Australia got thrown into a rental crisis and a housing crisis and everything else crisis. And we were just like, what the hell do we do? It was around that exact time as well. I was working and I had done for many years in conjunction with my creative stuff. I was working in community. So I would organize and I would gather mutual aid and events, workshops, entrepreneurship, all kinds of different things for women, gender diverse people, uh, First Nations women, and uh, in my local area and nationally as well. And it was really great, but I was hitting this uh, frustration level that I just couldn't get over. I was working within systems that just didn't work, you know, trying to get a result for myself and for people around me that almost didn't exist and wasn't ever meant to exist. So I was so frustrated with everything around me and everything I was doing. And I was, I was like, surely there's something else. Surely there's more, you know, like how can we push this further past all this bullshit really? Um, and then, so Psych, my husband, is in an art collective, a digital art collective called Depthcore, and that's been going for like over 20 years. Um, he's been in it since he was 20, he's like 33 now, 34. And some of the artists in the collective were like, hey, you should check out NFTs. Some of us are creating these NFTs. It's amazing, like talking about the benefits of blockchain and whatnot. And he told me, and I swear to God, like I haven't had a reaction like this for to, to something for, I don't know, it just, it was like a light bulb moment. And I was like, this is it. I grabbed him by the shoulder. But wait, did you know at the time, were you already familiar with the concept of Web3 and NFTs? No, or no, were you just I, looking for something new? I just needed, I, ne I needed infrastructure or something that was pushing past what we were doing and what I was doing. I was like, I've, I've reached the limit and I'm not going to get a result that I want working in this broken ass system. You know, I want, I wanted something else. And he told me about this and I was already familiar with crypto. We'd, we'd been playing around with crypto for a few years, not successfully, mind you, but it was just this, this light bulb. And I can remember his face because he must've been a bit weirded out. Cause I was like, this is it. Like <laughs> I was freaking out. And that was literally, I can remember I was in the back room where the office was of our, like a house that we were renting at the time. And I remember surrounded by all my children's crap everywhere. And, you know, there was like music on and I can remember just standing there and that's it. That's the moment. And I've been obsessed ever since. I haven't been able to look away. I was immediately like, you know, oh my God, where can I consume as much as I can? Clubhouse, Twitter, like, where is everyone? What's going on? desperate to find my communities and um and i did and then the rest is history I, I think for a lot of us it was pretty much what you said during the pandemic everything has slowed down significantly you know those of us who weren't already working remote everyone was just basically stuck and i think that there was this sort of convening around clubhouse right and i often say that i think I think Clubhouse was a, a moment. I mean, I don't, I don't really know if they're even still what they're doing now, but it was such a moment because it was about connection, right? And it was audio only. 
And it was like, you could listen passively or participate, but you could do it while you were doing other shit, right? But everyone was trapped inside. And it was the one way to really connect with people because we were all isolated. And so it's really interesting how Clubhouse for so many of us represented sort of like that, that genesis, that birth of like what I remember seeing, like, what are NFTs in a room one day? And I was like, okay. And it was just so many of us just gravitated towards Clubhouse at that time. What was it for you? How did Clubhouse become a part of your journey to NFTs and to Web3? It's an interesting, it's an interesting one because Clubhouse was, it was really at it in its heyday when I was my most nervous to join in. And so I can remember like we would have it on all day, just all day. Be all like you said, it was just always on, always yeah. going. Just be listening to it basically constantly. I can remember running into rooms like I could run into a room if I heard a woman's voice or like any any voice other than like your typical baritone like crypto bro yeah. talking and talking and then talking over each other. Anytime I heard anything other than that, I would run into the room and be like, oh my God, oh my God. And like listen it like, who is this? Who is talking? And and it was those moments that really gave me the validation to to jump in. I was still so nervous. I never even spoke on Clubhouse, never. And I'll tell you why. The work that I did in community brought me a lot of not backlash, but like resistance. Mm. And I think that's the case when you're doing anything that's got impact or that challenges the status quo, you you feel resistance. And I think that that's a good thing. And it's an indicator of, you know, you, you're progressing and you're getting, you're getting somewhere with it. But at the same time, I didn't know if I was ready to receive that from the crypto space because I knew the demographic and I knew what that looked like and how toxic the internet is and all this stuff. And I was just so nervous. I was like, is there even a place for me here? Like, should I even be bothering with this? And then I eventually got to the point where I was like, I can't, I can't not join in so I made myself a Twitter I didn't have Twitter before and just started talking and I'd find I was, lo I was looking at Twitter spaces like trying to find anyone that was speaking about anything that I cared about and I came across the BIPOC LGBTQ space that was being run by um, Ed Balloon and Mech and uh -huh. Brina and everyone and I would just listen to that and that was the first space I ever spoke in their, their space and that gave me the like yeah you should be here and you should be doing stuff in this space and there's a spot for you. I remember that space uh, very well. Um, I talked to Ed a couple of months ago and uh, I, I used to listen as well and not say anything. But yeah, it was such a moment, I think, for so many of us. Let's fast forward a little bit. For folks who don't know, what is Dead Fellas? Dead Fellas um, started as a PFP, which for anyone listening that doesn't know what that is, it stands for Profile Picture. It's how people represent themselves on social media, on online spaces. Um, and early 2021, there was also a PFP movement, which caught my attention. I had studied in my own time, prior to all of this, the fascination between sense of self and how we represent ourselves online and how communities build. And I had compared web one to web two and then hypothesized web three so i need to find my essays because i was writing about this a long time ago wow yeah i know I, I was reflecting on that the other day like wow i need to find this because that would be so interesting to me to compare absolutely um how all of that came about was was fascinating and i could see again when you spoke about the loneliness and the isolation that came with covid and lockdown and all of the stuff that was happening around the world 
it was like this perfect storm for the need for more communities to grow. And it was around silliness and joy and just collecting for collection's sake. And just, it was, it was dumb fun. And then people started to do things that meant something and it started to represent real, real community with real impact for a lot of people and didn't see anything that I wanted to use. I thought, well, this is a cool concept, but I see nothing for myself. I see nothing for gender as a spectrum. I see nothing that's acknowledging anything outside of this demographic that already existed in crypto. So I thought, I'll make it. And, you know, Sack and I had together the skills to do it. We've worked together for a really long time. Implicitly, I knew that he could create what I had in my head. So Deadfellas came to me as like a, a lightning bolt idea. It was like fully formed. I could see what they looked like. I wanted, I knew what the vibe I wanted. And, and so we just, we created it and it was the most fun of all time. It started out as a PFP project of so generative art, 10,000 pieces where people could come to the collection and anyone could come and find themselves within the collection because all of the different traits that were used to generate the final images were designed ambiguous to gender intentionally so that when they combined in the multitude of millions of different possible combinations, there was a beautiful spectrum that just naturally uh, unfolded and and the result was anyone could come in and feel represented and included and and participate. I wanted to make sure that other people came and had their space to join in. And they did. And then it evolved into so much more. I knew that culture, and this is obviously the topic of this podcast, culture drives everything. And it's the glue that holds fabric together. It's the the glue that forms communities, that gives us validation in who we are and who other people are and understanding of other people. There's just, there's just nothing of substance without it. And so I wanted it to be culture first and people first, and especially acknowledging and respecting the movement that we came from, which was the art world and is the art world. So the majority of the support that we got early on was from everyone that I wanted to build this for. It was the queer people in the space. It was the BIPOC people in the space. It was everyone that I was like, I, I, would love my community to to be and to to feel and to it just and, and it made itself and it was wild i shouldn't say it made itself because the community co-created that's part of web3 that i love proof of culture is brought to you in part by zora the place to bring your imagination on chain visit zora.co to get started connect click create and now back to our interview we touched on the fact that we're, we're in the middle of a bear market. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that everybody's floor price is down. And what I've seen or recognized is that some of the traditional uh, PFP projects have had to figure out ways to evolve. How has the bear market affected Deadfellas and, and, and what does the next stage of, of Deadfellas looks like? Because obviously you can't just be a PFP project. And stay. I mean, you can, you can just stay a PFP project, but what does the evolution of Deadfellas look like? Uh, it's media, entertainment, culture, community, I would say, all of those things. And that was the idea always. You know, we always wanted to have a gaming world where people could connect through those means. Um, that's how we got people talking originally when there was like nobody knew who the hell we were. Um, um, it has been crazy though. The bear market is... It's been something that we've had to pivot 
completely at the same time as making sure we're true to the path that we are always had because I mean I'll bring up royalties but royalties um for anyone that's listening that doesn't know I'm sure you all know most of you was a huge debate over the last year basically marketplaces decided that uh they didn't want to honor them anymore um but basically it ripped the rug out from a lot of creators artists especially artists that were creating projects where the royalties were the utility like a lot of people like bring up ed balloon ed's run ed uh collection their the royalties were going to buying art from from black creators the utility of the project that's the point and that was taken and that's like you design models around an agreement that you make coming in and then it's gone i think most pfp projects were already building towards different revenue streams and making sure that there was a business model there some not all (laughs) um some yeah but the the thing is it had to it had to be sped up like completely it was like everyone was going one direction and they just like slammed the door down and were like okay we're going this way now um, and I honestly feel like there's going to be a couple more of those moments where everyone starts to get comfortable in something and then slam and we have to go the other way again. And that is the beauty and the horror of building an industry that you have absolutely no idea where it's going because it's getting built. We're building the tracks as we go. It's cool when you know what you're, when you know what you're doing and you've got the, the pieces lined up like we, we do, which is, which is good. But it's it's no less stressful. It's very stressful. I mean, you bring up a good a good point in that you start a PFP project, you're operating under certain assumptions. Those assumptions change. You need to pivot. I think that for me, what that brings up, just having been a founder and having been an investor, is I think for some PFP projects, when they started, they were not all thinking business. They were thinking fun project etc. And what I've yeah. noticed in the space is that there has been a need to become founders and entrepreneurs, basically. Like if you have a project, you've made $60 million and you have a community of people who are looking to you, this has become a business. Whether you prepared for it or not, you are now here. And I've I've seen that pivot from quite a few people in the space and a few projects in the space. Talk about that experience for you. I mean, it sounds like you were probably a little better prepared than most uh, because you were already running a business prior. But I'm wondering what that experience was like from, you know, from a founder's perspective. I can remember thinking when we launched, we had a lot of, obviously through the agency, a lot of clients on the go already. We had to choose at one point because it was so much work to get dead fellas ready to launch we really had to be like okay we sat down and we're like right we have to throw everything in to this one thing and risk all these clients or we have to just like not do that and just just keep doing what we're doing and i am a very risky person i like to throw caution to the wind and just do the thing um and psych is very much like a I'll do what you think we should do type of thing. But like, you know, it's, it's obviously his own voice and stuff, but he, he'll tend to like trust me in the crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just did it, but we we made sure that all the clients that we had like went to teams that we trusted to complete what needed to be done and, you know, guided it, but like essentially closed those jobs off and like, right, we're just focusing on this now. So it really, 
before we even launched became our entire focus. Like it was our job. That's it. Right. And has been since it's been literally our life. Like my children are even involved. You know, they're like my eight year old will be like, you should do this with dead fellas. Um, when we were looking at this space, sort of anticipated that that would be the case. The work, the shock of like, okay, we've done all this massive amount of work to get this project out. Now it's minted. I think that when back in the day, and when I say back in the day, 2021, <laughs> it sounds like it's a long time ago now. When people minted, I think that they all felt like, oh God, you know, I can sit back now, I can relax. But actually it got fucking crazy when you mint, like it's like, boom you're you're in it now you know that's it and i don't think a lot of people were prepared for that Mm -hmm. and i also don't think a lot of people were prepared for running projects or leading projects or what it would take and i will say that some aspects of it shocked me as well like and i think it's unique to web3 in that you've got this as a founder especially if you're doxed or you're like you know at real life events or whatever um there's like an intersection of being like this personality that everybody knows you know you've got like a notoriety and you're visible and everybody wants a piece of you but you're also the founder and leader of a a large company that's that's not typically a a combination that you see like it's it's like a level of niche celebrity that people have to deal with overnight that comes with a lot of challenges and risks as well as social media being completely accessible all the time and thousands of people expecting to access you all the time Um, as well as the responsibilities of running a business I think that combination presents a lot of pressure for a lot of people and I don't think everyone's um, built for it so I used to work at a VC firm and one of the partners told me there was a, a husband and wife team that were pitching us and he was like no and I was like, wait, you haven't even like, let me tell you about the startup. And he was like, I do not want to invest in a husband and wife team, like ever. Talk a little bit about working with your partner, because it's something that I know some people great at it. Other people won't do it. So I'd love to hear from because it sounds like you you have a one you've always had. It sounds like you've worked together very well in the past, especially now moving into the future your partnership on multiple levels. I'd love to hear about that process and what it's like working with your partner. There's no other reality for us. Like, it's just how it is. It's It's just always been that way? Always been that way. We've always come at things together. We've always, even when I've had a project or when he's had a project, it's always been like, we've been working on it together. You know what I mean? And we've we've been together since we were 18 and I'm I'm 33 now. And we've lived so many lives together and evolved so much together that there is this just knowing and trust where it's like we know our strengths i i can't imagine working with anyone else because i don't have that that deep knowing like i know him at a cellular level and he knows me at a cellular level and without that i don't know how we would navigate this to be quite honest that's beautiful. That's really that, that unique is that unique uh, thing with Web3. And you see this all the time. Like, I mean, yeah, you're talking about husband and wife, like people wouldn't want to invest in a husband and wife team or whatever. I I would worry about founders that just randomly meet each other and just think like, we're going to put all of this together. And it's right. like, do, 
even really know each other that well. Like mm-hmm. how how is that going to work? Um, so I think there's, there's pros and cons for us. It's it's pros. Yeah. You know, I just leave him like if if we have a project, for example, that we're executing, we just know our roles. Like he knows what I'm good at. I know what he's good at. We work together. That's how we always have done, and it it works. So in terms of dead fellas, was he the one that came up with the art? He did all the art or was that something he else? He did the art under my, under my direction. So, because I had the... Had you the, had the vision. I had the vision. I knew what I wanted it to look like mm-hmm. exactly. And honestly, I probably would have sat with a, another illustrator for days. And for us, it was like two hours. He got it out. First iteration of it. Yeah. yeah. And it was... But it didn't change after that. It was like, that was it. He nailed it. But the the first one that he ever did was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, I was sitting at the computer and I was like, this is, it's just not it. Like, I just, we might have to just can this. I, I don't, this is not it. It's the worst thing ever. And he's like, no, no, let me try again. And I was like, okay, so we're going to do this line. Like, do it like that, a bit rounder, like all this stuff. And he just got it. Like, it just mm-hmm. happened. It was perfect. It was so, it was exactly what you see now. And from then it was like this, amazing journey we were able to like we were watching like our favorite movies we were listening to our favorite music like everything bringing all of these inspirations in all the stuff we really love together and being like oh my god let's do this trade let's do this i think that's why it got to me like pe- when people started to like steal traits and like copy and you know like hijack the art and stuff not derivatives through community but like you know random people trying to do their own stuff mm-hmm. this isn't just a project where we've paid a fiber artist to like create something like we sat and poured ourselves and our relationship and what we love and our history into this. I can remember every single line being drawn and like, it means so much. So I think that's what kind of makes it special. So is there an underlying theme of a love of horror or what is the driving idea behind it? It's, it's pop culture. It's, it's pop culture and horror in an accessible soft way. Everything was intentional. So even like the the color used for the blood in the collection mm-hmm. isn't red. It's like a like a an orange instead. And that's intentional. Like all of those things are to to soften it a little bit. And we also had the degrades so you can have like a fully fresh design if you don't want any gore or any horror or you and you can go down through damaged or rotten. Um but it was it was really just counterculture and looking at a way to represent all of those like punk and skateboarding and all of that we've got nods to our favorite musicians and queer culture and just like having everything in there that makes us who we are in the collection and it it just it just works and it It feels rich yeah absolutely how do you how do you see your role in shaping and diversifying web3 and the nft space in particular me personally, I feel a lot of pressure, mm. not pressure, responsibility, I would say. And I feel like there are a lot of people that would feel that as well. Cause I think that when you're asking for giant industries to change, you know, we're sitting at the intersection of fine art, finance and technology and all of those are traditionally not very diverse right. industries. When everyone talked about Web3 in 2021, it was like, oh, this utopia, look at everyone. We're just PFPs, guys. You know, the same exact people that uphold all of the stuff in Web2 
uh, are in Web3 and literally nothing's changed except now they're a cartoon cat. So to me, it's like we need to make conscious changes, but you can never force anyone or tell anyone you need to do this or you need to do that. Right. I always say like you need to meet people where they are and lead by example and take responsibility as to what you can do personally and that's the that's the length of where you can go like you can try and have influence and impact through those actions that you take yourself but that's really all you have control over is your own actions so rather than getting super frustrated about what other people are doing or not doing which i do i do get frustrated I try to lead by example and I try to make a conscious decision like, am I doing this correctly? Am I doing that correctly? Because I know a lot of people are looking at me and and watching me and it is having an impact. But that's the same for a lot of people in the space. You know, they, they carry that whether consciously or subconsciously or, or not at all. They don't even realize they're doing it. Um, they're having positive impact. There are still, I mean, I think there have been a multitude of efforts across the board to make this yeah. space more welcoming, more inclusive, more diverse, not just yeah. for people of color or queer people, women, etc. I am still hearing horrible stories of things happening to women in this space. Um, it's it's Tell almost love right now. I'll write a book one day. Yeah, not right um, <laughs> Yeah, it's unbelievable, right? I mean, you still hear these stories, and it's. It's disheartening. I've also seen people leave the space as of late for a variety of reasons. What do you think is missing to make this space as inclusive as it could possibly be? One thing I think is a really big missing piece of the puzzle that would not solve problems, but challenge a few is access. I think that, um, like I spoke at an event in Sydney South by Southwest was in Sydney for the first time uh, a few days ago and I spoke on one of the main stages and it was great and it was quite a mixed audience and I loved that. And then I went and spoke at an event called Women Who Innovate and it was Michelle Reeves and Mavion and Honey Badges and they 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 put it together and it was not a Web3 thing. Mm-hmm. It was just like women doing cool stuff and I was there to talk about Web3 and there was only a really tiny handful, like maybe six people in the room that knew what what I was talking about. And I think like every single person afterwards came up to me like, how do I get involved? How do I do this? How do I do that? And I think that that clear pathway to even joining or experimenting, seeing even what it is, mm-hmm. is so confusing. There's that level of access that, that sucks. But then I think also just in terms of getting the tech into the hands of people that would be able to utilize it most like underserved communities where DAOs could be utilized to access community funds to improve resources or infrastructure or opportunities for kids I feel like all of those communities would benefit from it the most and and form communities really easily in this space and start to challenge like what it even means to be in Web3 or, or utilizing blockchain tech at all past that degen kind of thing. Yeah. But you need tech. You need tech to get to that. And we're not at the point where tech is even accessible. We're not even at the point where you can afford internet access. So you're thinking lowering the barrier to access for, for mm. people to, to get into the space. Yeah, just making it easier. To be quite honest, the majority of people will not ever give a shit about how a smart contract works. They just want to know what it does. 
And how it just for them, right? Yeah, exactly. Like what it can do for you, like lead with the value prop. If I go down the street right now to my kid's school and I stand and tell their teacher to listen to me about smart contracts and DAOs and she'd be like, what? But if I said, I've got this opportunity where you can have infrastructure that's like transparent and immutable and it's going to help you make all of your decisions in a fair way, like that is better. Yeah. But we're just so focused on making all of this content that's too, it's too confusing, I feel like right now. I agree. I think I, I say this quite often is that the the actual user experience needs to be elevated and the technology needs to be in the background because you're right. No one, if you say smart contract, it means nothing to the average person. Um, yeah. I think art is a really great gateway drug into the space. There's still a lot to learn, but I think it's a great way to get people interested in collecting. I mean, the art is what brought me to Web3, and I think that it's it's a great way to introduce people to collecting. Every couple of months, I'll just be like, hey, I'm going shopping on Tezos. And I always get these great emails from creators who are like, thank you so much. You know, you made my day or you made my week. It's like, and you don't have to buy something that's, you know, 10 ETH. You can you know, spend significantly less and amass a wonderful collection of great art. And that's the other thing that I try to tell people. It's like, there's really talented people here making great art. And so if collecting is your jam, this is a really great way um, to do it. But I certainly do agree with with lowering uh, the barrier to entry. I think so many things are so confusing uh, to people. It's like they want to interact with Web3 in the same way that they interact with Web2. They want to sign up, as simple as your email and a password. If you lose your password, they want to be able to reset it. They don't want to be told, oh, you're SOL because you lost your secret keys. No one wants to hear that, you know? Um, and so I think it's incumbent on those of us who are here and have been here for quite some time to try to foster that and bring other people into the space. Um, I think the adoption rate is still quite low. And so those of us who are here are kind of special, right? Um, the rest of the world, they don't really care yet. Um, but I do think that the blockchain is here to say, so we need to also figure out better use cases for, for the technology as well that will affect people on a deeply personal um, level. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what's been one of the most rewarding aspects of your journey so far. Um. Two stick out for me as like the top two. One of them is seeing, and you just touched on it briefly just now, seeing the immediate impact on real people and how that reverberates around the world. You know, I've had messages from people all over the world where they've been like, you know, thank you because of what you've been able to do. I was able to pay for my kid's school for two years. Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because of an exhibition we had, some artist got, signed to this thing or got this job or you know all of all of that like that the real world impact on on people even at a social level where we have had quite a lonely few years i think in the world and you've got these little hubs where they're like essentially homes for people um you know that you can go into the discord at any time and reach out and you've got people there that's got you back and there's people that have been speaking every day and truly love each other, real connection is happening and that that impact on the world is 
a very, very real positive one. And I think a lot, a lot of collections have produced that, which I think is wonderful. Um, when you look at what you're doing and you're looking at the landscape, it's easy to kind of look out and look at the macro and be like, right, so we've got gaming and we're doing this and we're doing that and all of these pieces, but then you zoom in and it's like real individual people and looking at their experience. That to me has been a really big deal. On the other side as well, personally, just being able to showcase to my children that you can work in creative industries and you can live an unconventional life and really with self-sovereignty and self-determination and provide value for the world, but also find value for yourself through your own expression and authenticity and all of that. That is a really, really big deal for me to be able to walk that in front of my three daughters. I think it's so easy to be telling children, you can do anything and you can do this and you can do that. And I was raised like that. But then when I hit the age where I thought, right, now's my time to do anything, I was hit with the real world. I wasn't really ready for that, where I'm able to do that with my kids, showcase to them with my own my own experiences, but also with a, a bit of realism as well. Like these, because I talk about the challenges I face with my kids because I don't want them to get to the point where they're in the world and then they're like, oh shit, we speak about uh, in very real terms and they're, you know, they're, they're young, but I think that's important. And it's just been been really cool. That's really great to hear. Yeah, you recently um, took a selection of artists to Korea. Yeah. Tell me about the impetus for that and, and what you're hoping to achieve. Okay, so Culture Unchained um, is essentially the, the manifestation of what I believe in my heart to be the biggest value of this, this space and this movement um, is real people in their stories and what they're doing with this tech to challenge things and to progress things and to innovate for themselves and for the collective. And I think that those stories are not prioritized. They're not really being told in a way where I feel like many people would be able to discover them. Uh, you know, you can learn about artists on Twitter spaces, you can learn about artists on podcasts, but you kind of have to search pretty hard for them. So I wanted to, well, what I saw was every time we would go to like a, a conference or like a, an event or something, we would always find ourselves, and I always do, and you you felt this too, you find yourself in a group of people and you look around and you're like, wow, every single one of these people is so interesting and so inspiring and they're all powerhouses in their own right. They're all like the cell of their, like the the nucleus of their own world you know what I mean? Like they've got their own orbit, all yeah. of these people. And it's the same everywhere you go at these events, like all of these amazing individuals with their own ecosystems and their own everything. I thought I need to document this because it happens every single time we go anywhere. I want these stories to be told. I want all of, I want to look back in 20 years and be like, oh my God, you know, this person's doing this now and this person's doing this now. I also wanted to produce content online that challenged the notion of what mainstream media is painting this um, industry out to be because what they're talking about in terms of crypto and NFTs is not my reality. That's not my experience. No. And I think that part of the value of blockchain is the sovereignty to tell your own stories and to document your own stories and to have ownership over that narrative. 
So that's what I wanted to do with Culture Unchained. We basically wanted to pick uh, various creators from the space that I knew were doing really cool stuff, have a good story to tell, bring them together and uh, go experience something new together. So for us, that was Korea Blockchain Week. The same week it was Freeze in Seoul and it was also Fashion Week in Seoul. So it was a convergence of massive amount of culture all in one spot. I see Korea as a bit of an epicenter for um, the next the next movements in Web3 and, and what's going to pop off. So I, I thought it would be interesting to go over there and to facilitate some connections and experiences for the creators that were coming along. I pitched it to MetaMask to sponsor, who responded right away. They really liked the idea and wanted to see what we were we were going to do. So they agreed to sponsor the the pilot episode. So we got to work and we we did it. We went over there, had the best time ever. And the um the full pilot episode is actually released in the next week, which is really exciting. And it's going to be a thing that continues. So awesome. uh, we're looking at Paris next time. We'll have a new set of creators. Um, and it will just go on like that, just this, hopefully this full series of different episodes looking at different creators, their stories, but also different parts of the world and just kind of get a bit of a lay of the land in this moment in time. Really quickly, you, you touched on your feeling that Korea is going to be sort of like the next the next spot. What did you see there that led you to believe that? What is it that's happening in Korea for those of us who don't know or who didn't get to go to Korea Blockchain Week? I feel like it's Korea, Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, like it's a lot, it's Asia in general, but Korea specifically, um, there is a, it's like an energy there where everything is naturally leans to the innovative. Like it feels like in Korea, it feels like there isn't a resistance to innovate and there isn't a resistance to the new. Every experience is immersive and new and it feels really progressive and like how far can you push the experience of shopping in person? How far can you push the experience of going to the bathroom? You know, like mm -hmm. it feels like there's there's conscious effort there to push and with the, that in combination with the Korean wave, like the, the way that there is this... Um, cultural countrywide government-backed effort to push culture out into the rest of the world from Korea that combined with that energy the way that experiences when you're at like an event like transmedia you know there's like it's never just as it seems there's always something else there's always something to discover or to add on and the way that tech is like woven into that naturally it just it feels inevitable to me that that would be a place where it's going to pop off next. I look forward to it. I've never been to to Korea. I've been to Japan, some other places over there, but I haven't been to Korea. So I look forward to to visiting and experiencing some of that. This has been such a great conversation, Betty. I want to thank you again for your time. And let's close out with asking you, what does culture mean to you? Um, Without culture, there is no substance to life. I feel like it is the the energy that gives us the vibrancy that we need to live a happy life, a joyous life, uh, an empathetic life. It's human understanding. It's communicating not just who we are or who we want to be, but who we've been. It's honoring ancestors and history and it's just the glue to everything. Without it, things mean nothing to me. So... Yeah, and it's exciting because you see culture forming in this space, converging with people's people's internal like deep cultures 
we're creating a new culture together by coming at each other where kind of where we are. I see it as almost this like, you know, when paint mixes, I'm very visual, you know, like if you pour paint on like oil and it's kind of all going like this, mm -hmm. it feels like that right now. Like everyone's got, everyone's bringing their awesome selves and we're forming a new culture through the lens of our own. And it's just so special. I love it. It's what drives me. As we bring this episode to a close, I'd like to extend my heartfelt thanks to Betty for joining us today and for sharing her invaluable insights on dead fellas and the broader NFT landscape. Her passion, expertise, and vision are really inspiring, and it's clear that her contributions are not just shaping the present, but also paving the way for the future of digital art and community building. As the NFT space continues to evolve, conversations like this one that we had today are essential. They not only inform and educate, but inspire and challenge us to think differently about the role of digital art and technology in shaping our culture and society. For those who want to learn a little more about Betty and the Dead Fellas, be sure to follow them on social media platforms and join the vibrant community if you can. We'll include all that information in the show notes and remember, NFTs are ever-changing and full of opportunities, so stay curious and stay engaged. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Proof of Culture. Your support and engagement are what drives us to bring you the most relevant and insightful content in Web3. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcasts and newsletters and sharing with others that might find value in our conversations. For the latest on NFT news, educational content, and more episodes like this, visit The Blackchain. That's www.theblkchain.com and join our mission to empower artists, collectors, and entrepreneurs in Web3. This is Sean signing off from Proof of Culture. Stay creative, stay innovative, and most importantly, stay true to your vision. Until next time.